Hello to the best listeners in the podcast universe. Or maybe you're new here, and in that case, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll keep coming back. I'm excited to share the second revisit of one of my picks. This week, we're revisiting Almost Famous, and during the recording of this episode, I realized that, in fact, this is my actual favorite movie, and it's not Face Off. Sorry, Nicolas Cage. Almost Famous makes me so happy, and I hope this movie and this episode makes you feel the same. Gina and I can't wait to be back soon with all new episodes in February, starting with my next pick, Donnie Darko. But until then, here's Almost Famous. Welcome to... Nope, never saw it. I'm Gina, a movie lover. And I'm Sonia, a movie not lover. My mission is to make Sonia watch all the movies she's never seen. And my mission is to watch more movies and not always have to say, nope, never saw it. So we started this podcast. We hope you enjoy it. So Gina? Yes, Sonia? I'm ready. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Nope, Never Saw It. I'm Gina, and with me always is the beautiful Sonia. Hello, Wisconsin! <laughs> I don't know why that was the first place I thought of. I think that they yelled that at the end, at the end of the um, credits for that 70s show. I should have said, from Troy, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> any, yeah, any of these things. Missed opportunity. Oh, Sonia, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm amazing. That's good. Yeah. Is are you amazing? And you're gonna tell me more in your friend share, or can um, you tell me? Actually, now? my friend share has nothing to do with why I'm amazing. But okay. I, I shouldn't say I'm amazing. I'm feeling amazing because in our last episode, I was saying that summer was in full swing, and I really felt it. This yeah. has been like the best summer ever. Really? Oh my gosh. Um. The the weather has been amazing. I had a backyard movie night, which you weren't around for, but you should be around for the next one, hopefully. But I'm going to have a few more. I've been doing yard work. I've been reading for pleasure. I've been seeing friends. I think every day since summer has started, or at least since school has ended, I've eaten out for at least one meal because I'm like meeting up with someone and catching up with friends and, or Lee and I are going out or I'm taking Brian out and I'm going hiking and, oh my God, it's amazing. I just can't even. That sounds so fun. <laughs> Maybe that should have just been my friend share. <laughs> well, it's okay. It doesn't have to be your friend share. Cause now I get to hear two things about you. That's true. That's true. Um, well, well, maybe we should just dive into our friendship. Yeah. Let's do it. So I think I ruined it because I said, yeah, at the same time that you played it. So I'm sorry, everybody. I no, no. Friend share. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. Um, my official friend share is that I've been reading this book and it's called Films of Endearment. Okay. And it was a gift that was given to me by a student who just graduated and I had her in my film class her junior year. And then she graduated this year and she's going to be studying film at Ithaca. And so she gave me this book and it has been such a wonderful journey. So it's about, um, it's, uh, it was, it's written by a film critic and he's writing about the films that he watched with his mom 
growing up and he's focusing on 80s films and how each of these films resonated with his mom and how they helped shape him and what he learned about them and how the movies were made and each chapter is about one film from one year of the 80s so he's picking one from 1980 one from 1981 82 etc and what's really cool is that I'm watching some of these films so I've decided I'm going to watch each film if I've never seen it or if I saw it a long time ago and don't remember it. So it's just been like a really fun journey for me and I'm so enjoying it. And are there many that you have never seen before or have you seen everything? I definitely have not seen everything. The Well, the first one from 1980 was the movie nine to five, which I've seen mm-hmm. a million times. Um, and then 1981 was mommy dearest, which I saw parts of. So I rewatched that. And then 1982 was a movie called Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which I had never even heard of. Me neither. So I watched that. Um, And then the next one that I have to watch is Terms of Endearment, which I have seen, but I saw it once a long time ago. I think I've been avoiding it uh, because um, I'm saying it's because I don't have time, but I know it's a really sad movie and I don't feel Mm -hmm. like being sad right now because as I said, I'm awesome because summer's awesome. So anyway, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my God, you make me laugh. <laughs> um, and that's well, my friend Cher. I think that I look forward to hearing about these films. Um, and I'm afraid for the day that I'll have to watch them. <laughs> I will not make you watch some of these films, I promise. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, well, for my friend Cher, you may have seen, I, I posted something on Instagram recently, but um, Sean and I were just up in Skinneapolis this past week, which is for people who maybe don't know what I'm talking about, because every time, pretty much most times I say Skinneapolis to people, they're like, what are you talking about? Um, but it's one of the Finger Lakes and um we went there for like a family trip with Sean's family. And this is the town that Sean and I got married in. And I haven't been there since before the pandemic. Um, so it was really so lovely to be up there. And we actually, I was only going to go for the weekend originally, but then we sort of had the like brainstorm light bulb moment of like, why don't we go early and you can work there because you're still working remotely. Um, so it was, it was, you know, I would work during the day, but then have, we'd have fun family time in the evening. And then we hung out on the weekend. Um, and I randomly saw, uh, my friend Donnie, who is the one who we dedicated the Rocky episode to, it just like kind of worked <laughs> out. Like he was driving from one place to another place and skinny Adolis was on the way. Um, so it was really, really so lovely, but the person who I think had the best vacation was Jacob. Um, he loves it up there. He went swimming. He rolled around in the grass. He let a child pet him. Like (gasps) I know it was like a really, um, he had a really wonderful week. Oh, that makes me so happy. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you when you saw your friend Donnie, did you tell him that you finally watched Rocky and stayed awake? He knew actually before, because I told him when we were recording it, Mm -hmm. um, that I had to watch it. So, uh, we haven't talked about it because I don't want to ruin the episode for him. Okay. But he knows. So I look forward to hearing his comments. 
Okay. Well, cheers to Donnie. Cheers to Skinny Atlas. Cheers to our friend share, Sonia. Cheers to your summer of awesomeness, right? What are we drinking? We are drinking a drink that I want to taste first. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's good. That's um, good. It's called a rocket rye. <laughs> <laughs> and I just had to pick something like kind of cheesy that really encapsulated why we're here today, which is to discuss the amazing film almost famous. Mm-hmm. Um, so rock and rye is made with straight rye whiskey, which I have to admit, I didn't realize I didn't have. So I'm using bourbon, which apparently is very close to rye whiskey. Um, but then it also has orange juice, lemon juice, syrup from maraschino cherries, and then sugar syrup. And then you garnish it with a maraschino cherry. Okay. It's good. It's delicious. Yes. And I am using a fish glass to drink it out of. I'm really on theme for this episode. Like I am so excited to talk about this movie. You really are. And I'm excited to talk about this movie. And I, I really enjoyed this drink. This is definitely a step up from what I mixed in our last episode. Um, There is no Sambuca in this. There is no licorice flavor. I used all of the proper things. I even I even used uh, fresh lime and orange juice, lemon and orange juice. The only thing is that I don't, I don't think the whiskey I had, cause I know it said it had to be a rye whiskey and I didn't have a rye whiskey. Yeah. Same. So, so I mean, I feel bad cause it's rock and rye, but you mm-hmm. know what? We're doing the best we can. Rock We're and doing the best we can. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. All right, Sonia. Well, we have our drink. We did our friend share. Are we ready to get into this movie? I'm so ready. Okay, here we go. So we are going to be talking about Almost Famous. This is our third Cameron Crowe film that we've talked about in this podcast. We've already dived into, dipped into Say Anything and Jerry Maguire. If you haven't listened to those, check them out. But Almost Famous was released in 2000, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, starring Billy Crudup as Russell Hammond, Patrick Fugit as William Miller, Kate Hudson as Penny Lane, Francis McDormand as Elaine Miller, Jason Lee as Jeff Beebe, and Zoe Deschanel as Anita Miller. Now, Sonia, in the tradition of Nope Never Saw It, I've made a list of films that are connected to the names that I have just read. I'm going to read these film titles to you. If you've seen it, you'll say, duh, Gina, of course I've seen it. And if you haven't, what do you say? Nope, never saw it. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. So I didn't share, I didn't come up with any Cameron Crowe titles because this is our third time talking about Cameron Crowe. And I think I've touched on all of the big Cameron Crowe films already. So I don't want to be too repetitive. So we'll just dive into our actors. So Billy Crudup, who played Russell Hammond, was also in the following films. Big Fish. Nope, never saw it. Okay. Spotlight. Um, is that the one about the priests? Yes. I started it, but I never finished it. Okay. Okay. So does that count as a nope, never saw it? It counts as a nope, never saw it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And Patrick Fugit, am I saying his last name right? I have no idea, but I assume it's like fugitive. Yeah. Let's go with that. Patrick Patrick the fugitive. (laughs) So Patrick F. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> As William Miller was also in these two films, White Oleander. I have seen that. That's a good movie. Yeah. I read the book too. 
Oh, really? Oh, okay. I'm going to have to ask you about that later. And Saved. I have seen that. Okay, fantastic. Kate Hudson, who played Penny Lane, was in these two films, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Yes, I've seen that. And Bride Wars. Nope, never saw it. Okay, okay. Frances McDormand. I had a hard time picking Frances McDormand movies because she's in so many. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I say this every episode about an actor. I love her. Um, But she was in these two films, Primal Fear. Um, is Kevin, he who shall not be named in that movie? I don't think so. It's Richard Gere, Ed Norton. Oh, Ed Norton, Ed Norton. I'm sorry, Ed Norton. Um, I have seen that. Okay. Okay. Yes, I have. That's the one that my mom and I were watching, I think. And we had to rewind. We had to put on the closed captioning because there was a line that Richard Gere said. And she and I both were like, what did he say? And we (laughs) rewound it so many times. Oh my gosh. And then finally had to put the closed captioning on. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. So you've seen Primal Feeler. Have you seen Something's Gotta Give? I don't know. Okay. That's with um, Diane Keaton, Jack Nicholson. Oh, for some reason, I think I watched that in school, like in a psychology class. Are, are you thinking of, um, I don't know if that's, okay. I'm wondering, I thought maybe it would be at the other Jack Nicholson from the one where he like retires. Is that the one you're thinking of? I can't, the I'm totally blanking on the name retires. I have and then no he travels idea. like around and his wife dies and he travels around. No, mm-hmm. wasn't that one. Something's got to give. So. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. 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 Wow. It might've been like the last day of school or something. Okay. Oh, all right. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> um, Jason Lee, who played Jeff Beebe was also in chasing Amy. I have seen that. All right. And dogma. I've seen that too. Okay. Sonia, you are crushing it today. Yes. And Zoe Deschanel, who plays Anita, was in The Good Girl. Nope, never saw it. Jennifer Aniston is in that? Yes. Okay, nope, never saw it. Okay, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Nope, never saw it. Okay, all right. All right, you did pretty well, Sonia. I think this is your, I think this is your best one so far of movies that you've seen. Um, Also, I didn't come up with films for these other actors, but can I just say before we get into our friends connection and our plot summaries that it was very fun for me watching this film and seeing all of these other people, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Noah Taylor, Anna Paquin, Farusa Bach, Jimmy Fallon, Rain Wilson, Jay Baruch, I'm going to say name, Eric Stonestreet. Eric Stone Street. I think this drink is hitting me really hard already. (laughs) Mark Marin, Peter Frampton, Susan Melinda Yeagley. Like there, there were so many times it was like, holy shit, it's holy shit, it's him. Holy shit, it's her. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it was very exciting for me. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Moving on. Friends Connection, Sonia, in our efforts to prove that the television show Friends is the center of all things, I have three Friends Connections. That I will I share. Also have three. Okay. One is one is a stretch, but I realize I also said one during our last segment. Yeah, you did. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Well, I'll just throw that one out there. Uh, no, no, no. Oh wait. Um, yeah, Zoe Deschanel was in The Good Girl, which also starred Jennifer Aniston. I have another Jennifer Aniston friends connection. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy Crudup is in The Morning Show. 
with Jennifer Aniston, which is a fantastic series, I think. Yes, I had that one too. And I agree. It's a fantastic series. Okay. Do you have any? I have one more. Do you have any others? I have two more. Okay. One one of which is a stretch. So I'll save that one for last. Okay. Um, Erin Foley, who played the who played Allison the fact checker. Yes. Was on an episode of the television show called Go On, which Uh starred Matthew Perry. Oh, nice. Okay. That's a good I liked one. That show. It was it was a short lived like one season show, but I really liked it. I never watched it. I think I think it it it's about him. Like his wife has died, so he goes to a support group, okay. and then he like they it, he was like falling in love with the head of the support group, but then they canceled it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that was a bummer. All right. Um, my last. Friends connection is Anna Paquin was in Scream 4, which also starred Courtney Cox. She was in Scream 4. I forgot about that. Um, my stretch one is so you know how I said in the last episode, like sometimes I'm just gonna make like storyline connections. Mm-hmm. So when William is that the character's name? Yes. Vincent, Victor. <laughs> um, when Victor finds out that he's actually <laughs> only 11 is like when Phoebe thinks she's turning 30, but it turns out she has already turned 30 and she's turning 31. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> That's a good one. Thank you. All right. Okay, Sonia, moving on. Normally, in our, in our podcast, I pick the movie. And when I tell you what movie we're watching, you give me a plot summary of what you think the movie's about. However, we earned over 60 points. So we are into another multiple of 20, which means that you got to pick the movie, which means mm-hmm. that I had to give you a plot summary. Yeah. So you're are going you ready. <laughs> <laughs> Gina, are you ready to hear word for word? Your plot summary? I am ready. Okay. There's this kid who wants to be a writer, and I think it's based on Cameron Crowe's actual life experiences. So he gets a job. I'm going to say he gets a job with Rolling Stone, and he starts following this band. And then there's this really pretty girl played by, oh my God, what's her face? Goldie Hawn's daughter. Oh, that's going to drive me crazy that I can't think of it now on the spot. Um, but anyway... And he kind of, he like definitely falls in love with her, but she's way older than him. And that's never going to actually be a thing, but it's like a coming of age movie and he learns lessons and there's good music and Kate something, Kate Hudson. That's almost famous. (laughs) (laughs) That was really fun. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I I have to say though, like, I kind of like, I mean, that's pretty much what the movie's about. Mm -hmm. Isn't it a little bit? You have one thing that is maybe horribly wrong that I really want to talk about. Okay. But we'll get into that when we get into it. Okay. Okay. Well, Sonia, (laughs) are you ready to hear my new plot summary? I would love to hear it. Okay, here we go. So this is my real plot summary for Almost Famous. When William Miller was 11 years old, his sister left him a gift under his bed before leaving home to become a flight attendant. That gift was music. As William flips through her collection of records, a whole new world opens up to him. A world of art, a world of writing, a world of rock and roll. 
Flash forward four years and William is writing for Cream Magazine, a freelance gig that leads to an assignment from Rolling Stone, tour with the up and coming band Stillwater and write an article that is honest and unmerciful. In his efforts to preserve the truth, his innocence, his budding love for Penny Lane and his mother's sanity, William learns his own hard truth. Not everything is always as it seems and still waters run deep. Yeah, girl. Was that That good? That was really good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. Okay. Well, Sonia, you picked this film. Traditionally, we start with my first impressions, but this is your pick. So I, I am really eager to hear, although I feel like I kind of know (laughs) why you love this film. Do you remember the first time you saw this film? Do you remember why you fell in love with it and why you wanted to revisit it? I do. And I, I feel like part of the reason I wanted to pick this film was to tell you the story of the first time I saw it. Cause I thought you would think it was really cool. Okay. Um, so I, this film came out when I was a senior in high school. Um, and I remember seeing the commercials for it and thinking that seems like a cool movie, but I, don't I'm not I don't know this wasn't like when Kate Hudson was kind of first getting on the scene and I must have seen an interview with her or something and I just didn't really like her mm-hmm. sorry sorry Kate and sorry John Mulaney if you're friends with her <laughs> thanks for listening John Mulaney thank you um <laughs> but so I was like kind of hesitant to see the movie and also as you know like I'm not a big movie person spoiler alert to everybody listening What? (laughs) but lo and behold that spring break I went to Paris to visit my sister who was studying abroad with and I went with my cousin and one of the things that we did was we went to see almost famous in the theater in Paris oh it had it had French subtitles Mm -hmm. um and I watched the movie and was like wow I shouldn't let one person who I think I maybe don't like get in the way because this film is fucking awesome. (laughs) Obviously from like the, well, maybe not obviously, but one of the first scenes is um, they're like showing clips of San Francisco and the chipmunks song is playing and mm-hmm. it's so funny because it kind of feels like when you look at the full soundtrack, that song feels so, so out of place. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's supposed to sort of set the scene for like what this film is and that it's um, like kind of a child's perspective in the beginning. And also, coincidentally, I had that CD as a child because my dad bought it for me. So like I knew that song Aww. and I was like, oh, my God, this is so cute and funny. <laughs> and then, you know, shortly after that, there's a Simon and Garfunkel song playing. And I'm like, OK, well, I'm hooked mm-hmm. on this, even if the story is bad, like the music is so good. So at least I'll enjoy that. But I remember just being completely captivated with the film feeling like you're going on tour with Stillwater um and all of the actors in the band are I think incredible and I just remember just loving the movie and thinking like this is something I would definitely watch again and have several times wow that is definitely a 10 on a scale of one to 10 in the Sonia's movie loving yeah and I I have to say as I was watching this movie I was thinking like 
you know, I've said Face Off is my favorite movie. I've said The Emperor's New Groove is my favorite movie. I think this is like my actual, like legit, real favorite movie that is like a movie that isn't kind of just a joke or just has nostalgia to it. Like I think as an actual constructed film, Mm -hmm. this is this is my favorite one. I was thinking that as I was watching it, because I I do remember in the back of my mind when I was watching it this time, I remember thinking, so Sonia's favorite movie is Face Off, (laughs) but I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking this has to be her favorite movie because this movie is so, it's just so on brand for, for you, you know? Um, and, and I have to say, you know, I've seen the movie before but I, and I think maybe I'd seen it twice and I, and I know I did not see it in the theaters, but you know, what's so crazy, Sonia. So you saw it in Paris when uh-huh. it came out in 2000. I know I'm you, I'm basically you, you were I there. Was, I was there. <laughs> I was living there. That's so crazy. <laughs> <I know. laughs> see, we were meant to be friends. It's I wonder so true. if you were in Paris when I, when I was like visiting Paris, you know, cause I wasn't living there, but I would go there. Yeah. Oh, this is crazy. Imagine if somehow one of us found a picture and the other one was in it. I've thought that before, you know, when people talk about when they've traveled to places when I was there and I, some, and I'll actually go through my pictures sometimes just to see, Hmm, I've never actually found anybody, but wouldn't that be crazy if our that paths so had crazy. literally crossed? Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, I have to say watching it, I I'm assuming this is probably the third time I've seen it. I, because I was watching it knowing that we were going to be talking about it and knowing that this was a film that you picked because it's a film that you loved. I, I couldn't help but watch it through your eyes. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I and, and, and sort of, I almost felt like you were sitting next to me while I was watching it, even though my son was sitting next to me while I was watching. It. He's a good, pro- he's a good proxy for me. <laughs> he's a good proxy for you. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I think the first time I saw it, I wasn't super into it, but I, this time I appreciated the story a lot more. I appreciated so many more things about it. And maybe part of that is because of these discussions that we've been having about film. So I've been paying attention to things that I normally wouldn't really be paying attention to or looking for, you know, in terms of, you know, the style of the film, the dialogue, the, the themes. Um, I, I thought it was, I thought it was really well done. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I, and I like that you, brought up the opening with the chipmunk song because there are a couple of things I want to say about that mm-hmm. one is that I love the contrast that it establishes about it being Christmas time and hearing this Christmas song and you know growing up on the east coast yeah. and usually having cold weather and clouds and I think once it snowed on Christmas in my entire life, maybe more than once, but, but seeing it in California, when people are walking around in bathing suits and palm trees are everywhere. I really liked that contrast that it established, but I also think when you were talking about it before, and this is something that I'd really like to get into so much of this film is about what's real, you know, and, and that idea comes up in the dialogue a lot. So you have this song. I love that. I love that you saw it as a way to establish that we are seeing the story through the perspective of a child, you know, or, or, or a young teen, um, because the song, you know, is, is a child's song. Um, but there's also something artificial about it, right? 
because mm-hmm. it's these cartoon characters that are singing, but the people who are actually singing, that's not their actual voice. I mean, that's their voice, but it's, you know, their voice manipulated mm-hmm. through technology, um, which I don't know if that was one of the reasons why the song was chosen, but like I said, there are so many moments in the film where different characters are, especially Russell, you know, that, that are always searching for something that's real, um, and questioning what's real and what's authentic, which made me think of La La Land. My mind is all over the place right now. (laughs) Well, just to add to the chipmunk song too, I think it was also trying to like, give us the point in time perspective. So William is his child and this is before Anita gives him the suitcase full of records so like that's what he's listening to he's listening to the chipmunks he's listening to like kid stuff and then it very much evolves into the music that he has been exposed to the music that he is searching out um and every song and on the soundtrack was really hand curated to tell the story yeah um which is awesome. Yeah. Um, I also, so you talked about the opening and the other thing I loved about it, and I remember loving this in the theater on the big screen. I love how it's somebody writing. Yes. Um, and I just think like, I, I think I love it because it's so clever just because like that opening sequence in any film is always going to set a... Um, is going to set a tone. And I feel like that, that kind of ties to what you were saying, like the authenticness of it. Like it's somebody writing, it's actually Cameron Crowe writing, Mm -hmm. like just writing and not like these graphics that are flying into the screen and flying out. Um, and I also thought he had very nice handwriting. I thought so too. And I, I was also really impressed because that's a lot of pressure. I mean, I'm sure they could have done several takes of it, Yeah, but I like that too. And, and that's, and I like that that really is so much the core of who William is, especially when we get into the real meat of the story. One of the details that I loved about his character was all of the times when someone would say something and he liked the sound of it. So he would write that phrase down. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's cause that's something that a real writer is going to do. You hear yeah. something that, you know, sounds really good and you're going to, I'm going to write this. I'm going to use this, mm-hmm. you know, um, there were, there were a lot of little, details like that, that showed that like at his, at his core, this is what he's meant to do. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense because if this, I mean, this really, this was based on Cameron Crowe's own experiences growing up and writing. So I like that it's a writer writing about a younger version of himself as a writer. <laughs> yeah. And and not just even writing it. I mean, like truly, like he was following the who he was following Led Zeppelin, I think, or maybe mm-hmm. not following, but like touring with them for the purposes of writing. I saw in my research, a photo of Cameron Crowe and Pete Townsend. And I, I like felt like I was in the movie again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another thing, you know, co- talking about going back to that idea of authenticity and what is real, even just the fact that this is based on his own experiences. I think that, I think that makes the story even more real. I mean, there really wasn't anything in the story where I felt like there wasn't anything in the story that felt like it was beyond reality. Like it could, that could, you know, like that could never have happened. Yeah. You know, everything felt very anchored to me. 
Yeah. And that's one thing I, at one point I took a note and I just wrote, I love this movie. There's a prequel within the film because they set up, they set this up so well where you see William as an 11 year old who thinks he's 12 and like what happens to him and why it happens and then how he gets into music and how he's trying to connect with people. Um, so I think that probably is another reason why this film just has always stood, stood out to me because I don't need the prequel. It's there. It's right there, right? right exactly. There. Um, so this is, I just wanted to share, because I think I referenced this in the episode where we talked about a movie that Paul Rudd was in. And I said, oh, I'm so glad we're talking about him because I had a celebrity sighting of him once. And I actually have two celebrity sighting stories to tell for this one. Oh, tell me. Okay. So one, one is more recent. Um, I went to a Rangers game and Jimmy Fallon was there. Oh, and the reason, I mean, they showed him on like the Jumbotron, but the reason I knew where he was was because, so Trey Anastasio, the lead singer of Fish, goes mm-hmm. to a lot of Rangers games. And Sean and I went to a bunch of Rangers games this season. And, you know, I made a joke at the first one. I made a joke of like, I wonder if Trey's here. And then there he was. So then every <laughs> game we went to, I would just look for him because um, I'm <laughs> a stalker. Sorry, Trey. I know you listen to this too. Um, so I saw I, the last game we went to, I found him and then the seats next to him were empty. And Sean and I were joking like, oh, we should go sit with him, which obviously we wouldn't have really, cause we can't get into that section. But then Jimmy, they showed Jimmy Fallon on the Drumbotron and he was in the seats next to him. What? Right. Isn't that crazy? Okay. Yep. All right. Celebrity sighting number two is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, so this was years years ago um, Mm. when I worked in the West village. So I was walking from my office to the path train and I noticed a man walking down the street, holding an iced coffee and that's fine. People do that, but it was like January or February and it was really cold. So Mm -hmm. I remember looking at this person and like where I worked on the whole street, a lot of times you would see like the big truck, like they filmed so much stuff there. So like those trucks were always up. I never, I mean, I rarely saw famous people, but I would know that they were filming stuff there. So anyway, I saw this guy with the iced coffee. I was like, it's really cold. So I was kind of staring at him and probably gave him a look like, what is wrong with you? And then I looked up at his face and it was Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You're famous. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> I didn't mean to judge you. Like you probably just wanted your coffee. You probably just get judged all the time. For drinking your iced coffee when he was wearing like a big coat and everything um oh. but that was so we I, again also with him made eye contact oh my gosh Sonia mm-hmm. you are connected to this movie in so many ways I think so can I tell you I learned I read that Philip Seymour Hoffman who plays Lester Bangs only had four days to shoot his role mm-hmm. and that he had the flu the entire time I read that as well which you would not believe from his performance. He's like kicking no. stuff and like thrashing his arms about. Yeah. It's... And. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I to cut you up. <laughs> no, no, no. I really didn't have anything to say. Go ahead. And did you know Lester Bangs was a real person? I Like with the same name? 
Lester Bangs. Lester apparently was short for Leslie or a okay. nickname for Leslie. He was an American music journalist. Um, he was a critic, author, and musician. He really wrote for Cream and Rolling Stone magazine. And he was known for his leading influence in rock music criticism. Um, apparently another rock music critic named Jim DeRogatis. Mm-hmm rogatus called him america's greatest rock critic um but tragically lester bangs this is kind of weird Mm -hmm. was sick and was like self-medicating and accidentally overdosed and died at the age of 33 and also sadly philip seymour hoffman died very young wow not 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 that young but young yeah yeah and he that was the same was he, did he overdose as well? Is that what happened? He did, but I think his wasn't like trying to treat an illness. I think he yeah. just had a problem. Well, that's very sad. That is sad. Yeah. Um, Sonia, you, when I read, when you read my original plot summary, you said that there was something about it that was very, very wrong. I forget how you phrased it. <laughs> Horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Is that what you said? Horribly I did. wrong. So you said- um, you were talking about how William, the kid, the kid mm-hmm. who wants to be a writer falls in love with Goldie Hawn's daughter. Okay. And you said that she's way older than him and that's never actually going to be a thing. Okay. But there's the scene where they're talking about how old they are. Right. And she, you know, he keeps, he's like, I'm 21. And she's like, me too. And right. then he's like, I'm 18. And then she's like, me too. And then finally, when he says he's 16, uh-huh. she says me too, but in a way that I think she's actually supposed to be 16. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I've read that scene so differently. I, yeah. I, when I watched it, I read it as when he said he, I think he said he was, I think he started with 18 and when she was like, me too, how old are we really? And he kept going. And every time he's like 17, me too, how old are we really? And I almost felt like it wasn't that she was agreeing with him. Like she was also really young, but I thought that she was basically saying, I can see right through you, you know, like, no, for real kid. Like, I know this, I know you're lying about your age. How old are you really? Um, but I didn't, I didn't read it as she as her also being a teenager, I thought, I thought she was older. I thought she was, especially because she's been traveling around some, I mean, I guess that doesn't really mean anything. Um, yeah. I know. Well, IMDB says that Kate Hudson played 16 year old Penny Lane. Oh, wow. And, and that Kate Hudson is actually two months older than Liz Stauber, who played Leslie, who was supposed to be 20. Okay. So I, I believe that she could be 16 only because if you think about like the Beatles, mm-hmm. George Harrison was like underage and played in all the clubs in Hamburg. And then when they found out he was underage, they kicked him out. They kicked yeah. the whole band out. Okay. So I, I mean, I believe that all of the, all of the characters are meant to be like, probably still water is all like 19 to 23. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is possible that she could be 16. I just felt like <laughs> there's a lot of crazy shit that happens and she's supposed to be 16. And I think Kate Hudson was only like 20 or 21 when they filmed it. So like, 
the expectation that she could play someone at the, of that age yeah. is reasonable. Yeah. Um, it just made me feel so uncomfortable in many, 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 many <laughs> cases. I totally understand that. I think because I, I missed that. I really honestly thought I didn't think she was really 16. I guess I just read that scene wrong, but I think because I assumed she was older because even though I feel like if you took Kate Hudson at that age and you put her in like an episode of Dawson's Creek and she's mm-hmm. a high schooler, I'd say like, okay, yeah, totally. I could, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. But there was something about her character. Her character had a quality about her that was very experienced and mature. I agree. And so that's why when she keeps agreeing, me too, me too, I thought to myself, she's fucking with him because she's mm-hmm. trying to get him to admit how old he really is. And she's trying to say like, she's like, I see you, which I think connects them in, in the very beginning. But if she's also, but if she's only a year older than him, then it makes a lot of other things in the story. Well, at least their relationship um, a little bit more feasible in terms of, you know, him falling in love with her. I, you know, because thinking that she was old about wow, that just changes everything for me. Yeah. Honestly, if you watch, <laughs> watch that scene again, thinking that she's 16, because okay. then you'll see her, you see her like admit that she's 16. Okay. It, but it's not just that scene. It's the whole movie because well, you I know, felt, I just felt like, because I thought that she was older, that she was really unattainable for him, at least in, in terms, in the context of them having a romantic relationship and the whole, like, we're going to go to Morocco together. I didn't take her. I didn't take her seriously on that. You know, I felt like that was just kind of her way of saying, I like you, I trust you. Um, you know, we, there, there's a connection there where she felt comfortable enough to, you know, kind of like play this game of, yeah, well, we're going to travel. What are our names going to be? We need to wear completely different clothes and be completely different people. Um, but, but, and, but then her relationship with Russell, um, because now I'm like, well, how old is Russell? How old are these bands? It's so hard because all of these actors are clearly older. So now I'm questioning how old they're supposed to be in the story. Yeah. I mean, I think the band is all between 20 and 23, but I've been thinking about this a lot and like looking at it, like a 16 year old now, I'm like, you are an actual baby. But when I was 16, I thought I was an adult. I thought I knew every, not everything, but I thought Mm -hmm. I knew a lot. I thought I could handle things on my own. I would, if given, if I didn't have like parents who held me accountable and I could go run off with a band, I probably would have done it. Like, (laughs) honestly, like, you know, if I didn't have anything in my life that was like tethering me to what was expected of me. I probably like in my brain, they, all of the band-aids were like kind of teenage runaways. Cause especially at the time that this movie is supposed to take place, I feel like that was like a little bit of a, you know, people followed the rock scene and especially in San Francisco, like the summer of love. And, you know, I've, I've thought about what would be, (laughs) what would be my like 
hippie dancing in the street song in San Francisco during the summer of love. I know exactly what that song would be like. (laughs) (laughs) What would it be, Sonia? It would be Carry On by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Oh my goodness. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I'm, now I'm really, now I'm, I'm throwing my hands up in the air. I thought I, I could buy that she was like 19 or 20 mm-hmm. and all, and the other girls too. And you know what, this whole conversation is now making me think of the deflowering scene because they're all very, well, not forward. There's something really playful. Also, I feel like that scene was very tastefully done and yeah. kind of beautiful. The close up of him. Also, Patrick Fugit's face is so adorable. He's a cutie. The whole entire movie. But I love that scene because he's clearly like not entirely comfortable with what's about to happen. Um, and it, there's nothing graphic about it. There's something sort of playful and beautiful, the way it's filmed, the slow motion of you see the girls dancing around him and you just kind of see the close up of him and you see like the flowing scarves and bodies moving past him while he's locking eyes with Penny Lane. And Penny Lane watching him and there's this back and forth where he's looking at her, there's excitement in his eyes, but I don't think I personally, the way I read that scene, but now I'm questioning how I've read every scene in this movie based on the fact that I completely missed how old Penny Lane is. Well, I mean, I could be wrong. No, not not necessarily. Um, If it's an IMDB, it must be like, right. But, but like locking eyes with her and he looks excited, but I read it as him not being excited that he was about to lose his virginity, but that he thought he was going to have, that she was going to be a part of it. But then she waves, she does that little wave and she leaves. And then he looks a little disappointed, like, oh, you're not going to be a part of this, which is, you know, and but I felt like the girls, especially when they're like, let's deflower him the way they said it. I couldn't imagine. I think maybe it's because I teach high school and 16 year olds. And I don't want to think about them doing this kind of stuff. Well, it's just so of gross. course. I mean, of course, <laughs> like, I think that's, it's just like, as you get older, the younger people f- seem younger, but remember, remember being that age. I do. And I was the complete opposite of you. Actually, I did not think that I knew it all. I did not think that the thought of like running off and doing anything was completely off my radar. I was very comfortable being in high school, hanging out with my friends, eating my mom's delicious home cooked meals, sleeping, you know, in, in this house that my parents built and, you know, I was, I, cause I'm such a, I'm such a rule follower. There isn't much of a rebellious streak. <laughs> well, I'm not either, but I think maybe just because like, maybe cause this, maybe it's all music. Like this was the music yeah. I was listening to at that age and still am, but yeah. I don't know. Like it just takes you to that place. And like, when I was that age, I was very interested in Woodstock and like what happened there and what bands played there. So maybe it's just, maybe it's that. Yeah, I I do think I was, I mean, I think probably our listeners would agree, but I really do think I was born in the wrong decade. I could see that. Yeah. But I'm glad you were born when you were, otherwise we wouldn't be friends. Yeah. Or we would, maybe I'd be like your mom's friend. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe my mom has a friend that I'm supposed to be best friends with, but they were just born in the wrong decade. It's me. It's you. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, Well, do you want to hear some interesting facts about the movie? Of course I do. 
Okay. There's only two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a few. Okay. Um, okay. So one is um, in the scene where William and Penny are first talking about Morocco and mm-hmm. she says, do you want to come to Morocco with me? Um, William says, ask me again. And that was actually Patrick, the fugitive, asking <laughs> asking Kate Hudson to give him the line again so that he could react to it again. But they liked it so, or Cameron Crow, I guess, liked it so much that he kept it in. Yeah. Um, and then the second fact I wanted to share is that Jerry Cantrell was the original choice for the bass player. And he was in, so Jerry Cantrell is the guitarist. I was going to say frontman, but that's arguable because Lane Staley is maybe was the frontman. Anyway, I don't even know who I, these people are. Here I am debating <laughs> with myself. You do though. So Jerry Cantrell was in Alice in Chains, but he was also the copy guy in the cop, the copy God or whatever they called him in Jerry McGuire in Jerry Maguire. Okay. Um, and then he was also in singles. Okay. So Cameron Crowe like has a friendship with him, I guess, but I, I guess Jerry Cantrell was not available, but then I read he later regretted not being in the film. Huh. I yeah. like these facts. Um, I also have a couple of facts about the soundtrack. Okay. Tell me. So the soundtrack cost over $3.5 million in licensing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the film, there are over 60 songs, but only 17 made the cut onto the soundtrack. However, for the 20th anniversary of the film, they released a more extensive soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And if you were to guess if I ordered that on vinyl today, would you say yes or no? I would say 100% yes. That's correct. I did do that. Of course you did. Yeah. I also read that the original title of the film was untitled, mm-hmm. um, but they had to give it a title, but there, but there was a cut of that. And that original film is, I think, was it 172 minutes long? Yeah. yeah it's like two and a half hours. Yeah. So apparently, and, and I, and it was interesting because I read that Cameron Crowe had sent the original screenplay, which was 172 pages. And if you know, one page, every page in a screenplay is one minute of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, and he sent it to Steven Spielberg and Spielberg sent it back and said, shoot, like, like film every word. Like he thought it was brilliant. Like don't change a thing. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, that's not, he obviously didn't because that's not how long the film is, but they did release untitled right? Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a, there's a, there's like a director's cut of the film, which I have not seen, but I'm curious about it to see what else they included. Um, Cause there were some things that, you know, some questions that I, I had, but questions like that what? weren't really like weighing down on me. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Um, one other thing too is that in the in the scene where young William is flipping through the records that is actually Cameron Crowe's record collection mm-hmm. and the Stillwater songs there's five of them um, Cameron Crowe's wife at the time was Nancy Wilson is that her name yeah that's her name yep from heart <laughs> I was like 
that sounds wrong for some reason. Nope, that's right. Um, <laughs> they wrote three of the five songs. And then Peter Frampton wrote the other two. And I have to I have to make a confession. Um, mm-hmm. So Peter Frampton has this album called Frampton Comes Alive. Okay. And it's like a live album. Fish also has a live album called Hampton Comes Alive, which they... It's called okay. that because it's recorded at Hampton Coliseum. Okay. <laughs> I just realized like within the past couple of weeks that Hampton Comes Alive is because of Frampton Comes Alive. <laughs> I feel so dumb. Don't feel dumb because I've never heard of any of these things. <laughs> I know, but I feel like for someone who like, you know, knows that these two things exist even if you don't really know what they are, like yeah. it seems pretty obvious. Like I bet um, our, one of our top listeners, Lauren is probably like, what is wrong with you? How did you not know that? <laughs> right, Lauren? <laughs> I mean, truly. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. If you had to, I mean, I know I gave a plot summary, but if you had to boil it down to what you think, this film is about, I know Cameron Crowe, I watched a behind the scenes uh, special that was on the, the DVD. By the way, I am all about um, getting DVDs from the library now. Oh, I own of, the DVD. Oh, of course you do. Of mm-hmm. course you do. But yeah, this is like my, maybe it's because it's summertime and I have time to go to the library, but also I'm just tired of paying to watch movies. Yeah. Um, streaming so I I was like I'm I've been going to the library so I have the DVD and it has the bonus features and it had a you know making of behind the scenes and one of the things that Cameron Crowe had said which you know we had already talked about the fact that this is based on his real life experiences is that it was it was his love letter to that time of his life and his love letter to music and um, and the experience of writing and and what it what it did for him which I thought was really cool. But like in terms of like in the context of the story that's being told, like, what do you think, what do you think this story is about? Like, what's the takeaway here? What do you think? I know it's a big question. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on who you're talking about, because I think mm-hmm. every character, every character, I think the ma- the three, well, gosh, I was going to say the three main characters are William, Penny and Russell, but mm-hmm. I think that you can also, you can also give a summary of the film from Anita's perspective, from mm-hmm. the mom's Elaine. perspective, Elaine's yeah. perspective, and also from um, Jeff's perspective, um, and probably also their manager. But we won't go into that. But I think, I think for at least for William, Penny, and Russell, I think all of them are trying to find out who they are. Yeah. And they're all doing that through music yeah. and it's all in very different ways. Like for William, it's about writing about music and understanding what artists do and how they express themselves through music and finding the truth that you were referencing before. Mm-hmm. I think for Penny, it's about loving music and interpreting her life through that and wanting to be a part of it but realizing that being a part of it is maybe not what's best for her if she's trying to really like be herself. Yeah. And then for Russell, I think it's about making music that he 
that is authentic to him and that he loves to make and that makes him happy and makes him successful, but without compromising himself. Um, And I think I love so much at the end after like when they're kind of showing what happens to everybody and you see still waters on tour again, but they're touring on a bus and the tour (laughs) is called the no airplanes tour. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I love that so much because it's funny because like, clearly they're all traumatized from that plane ride, but I think it's also representative of the fact that they're like, we were getting famous and we were letting it like pull us apart. And that's not what we're here for. Like we are here for the music. We are here for each other. Um, and I love what that represents. Yeah. And that's just what I want every band that I like to feel. And it's so interesting because like being a Beatles fan as a young child, I never understood why they broke up. Like I just didn't, Mm -hmm. I was like, they were so good and their music was so good and they were friends. Like, why would they break up? And as you get older, you understand like who people are and why people do the things they do. And especially in that type of relationship, like there's a lot of creative difference and that's what drives bands apart. Um, and I think in this film, they portray that. I don't know why I said portray, portray, (laughs) (laughs) portray, they portray that very well. Like the scene with the t-shirt and, Uh, Jeff is clearly pissed off that the whole band is in the background and Russell is kind of in the front. Like it's those things like your ego. Yeah. Like your ego gets in the way, but your ego kind of needs to be there to be a musician. So I just, I, I found that scene to be very authentic. Yeah. But put a pin in that because I want to come back to that scene, but I want to go back to something you said about William, because it made me think about that scene where he, in one of his attempts to interview Russell, he asks him this whole string of questions, but he says, do you have to be in love to write a love song? Do you have to be sad to write a sad song? And I, and like you, what you had said about William made me think about that scene because I think that he really is trying to get to the heart of what music is about and where it comes from. Again, like going back to that idea of what is authentic and what is real is what you write coming from a real place. When you write it, but when you sing about heartache, were you writing that song because you were in pain? You know, when you write, when you sing about love, did you write that song because you were in love or are you just slinging a bunch of bullshit, you know? Um, and, and, uh, yeah. So, okay. Back to that t-shirt scene. I do think that it is kind of messed up that, that scene was really interesting to me because that was like the first break that we see that rift Mm -hmm. amongst Mm -hmm. the band members, but I can, but I can see where it comes from. I, I, I liked that scene because it added this layer because I mean, for me as a viewer, I didn't see that coming necessarily. I didn't see. And one of the things that I worried about when that happened was, oh, is this going to be another, um, excuse me, uh, this, this trope of you have the band and you have the front man and the lead guitarist and they're fighting over who gets, you know, all of the attention and they're going to break up because of it. Like it, it made me think of this as spinal tap a little bit, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it didn't necessarily go in that direction. Like, you know, they have that big fight in the plain scene and things are really awkward, but you see that there was some healing that happened after that, or there's, there's evidence of it at least. But I, if I were Jeff, I would have been super pissed off. Oh, totally. The other band members I'd be pissed. Like who does that? Why would you put 
why would you put a four-man group on a t-shirt and have three of them blurred in the background? Because I think that's what happens all the time. Like, you yeah. know, this reminded me of um, the video for Don't Speak by No Doubt, because that's, I feel like that's what happened to them. Like when they got big, the music industry put Gwen Stefani in the front because she was mm-hmm. this, like, you know, she was the woman, she was the person that was getting the most attention and they tried to like separate not separate her from the band but like give her different status from the band but the whole point of a band is that you are all in it together you're creating music together I mean that was the big downfall of the Beatles like Paul McCartney and John Lennon both needed to be doing everything George Harrison was like fuck this. I can write music too. Yeah. Which he can. Boy, could he write music? Boy, could he write music? I mean, I don't know if you've watched get back. Like it's, I mean, it's a very big time commitment if you're only a casual Beatles fan, but like the whole thing is about them recording that last album. And as much as you see them, like it's, it's so wonderful because you see this group of people who have been friends since they were children, like trying to create music and be um supportive of each other and supportive of each other's music but you also see like raging egos and people who think they know the best and that they're the best musician of the four and I mean and that's ultimately why it fell apart but yeah anyway I'll stop (laughs) (laughs) no it's okay I down from soapbox a little a little tangent I I got about three quarters of the way through the first episode of get back and and then I tapped out it's hard it's a lot of Sean did the same thing like it's a lot of just like you you feel like you're at band practice. So like a lot of it is yeah. like very boring. Yeah. Um, but you see, you should watch, I can't remember if it's the second or the third episode, but they actually catch on film. Like the moment that Paul just starts composing, get back. And you're like, what, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, the whole thing is very like intense to watch. Yeah. Well, Back to Stillwater, what was interesting about that t-shirt, because you you had said, you know, this is really common among bands, but I guess for me, what, what seemed uncommon about this was that it wasn't the front man that was mm-hmm. in focus while everyone else was blurred. It was the guitarist, yeah, which was, which was really interesting to me. Um, and I think I wanted, if I have any criticism about the film, and this is so nitpicky, because Russell's character really in a lot of ways, it, obviously, in as far as the band is concerned, is the focus mm-hmm. for the story. He's the one that Penny Lane is drawn to. He's the one that she wants to make great. He's the one who's dodging all of William's attempts to interview him. You know, we follow them to that party. So in a lot of ways, he really is the center. It feels like even though... William can't seem to get an interview with him. He is the center of William's story. Yeah. Um, but I also really like Jeff Beebe. Like I liked Jason Lee's character a lot too. Um, and, and so as a, as a viewer, I was trying to figure out, well, what is it about Russell that is more appealing than Jeff? And I guess I had trouble figuring that out. You know, those scenes where we see them performing, I think Jason Lee does a really great job taking on that role as the front man. And like mm-hmm. when he when he goes into that whole, that not tirade, but when he's trying to defend himself and what he does and he talks about, I connect, 
you know, mm-hmm. with the audience. And, and I felt like as a performer, being a performer, he did a really good job yeah. connecting, you know, yeah. like I watched those scenes and I, for me, I wanted to be in that audience. I wanted to be at that concert because of mm-hmm. him. So that was like one thing that I, that I struggled with was, well, well, what really is it? Why is Russell getting more of the attention than Jeff? Yeah. Part of me wonders if it's that he is like more mysterious or something, but it also mm-hmm. could just be like, I think oftentimes they choose who they think is the most attractive person, which I would disagree with. Mm-hmm. I think Jason Lee is better looking than Billy Crudup. No offense, mm-hmm. guys. I know, again, I know you're listening and you're listening together. So this is super awkward. Right. Please don't be mad at each other. Be mad at me. Um, but yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the only reason I could think of that. Or maybe who they think is most talented or maybe like Jeff doesn't play an instrument. So he's not as talented. I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know how they make these decisions in the music industry. I don't know the answers. I certainly don't either. (laughs) Um, Well, one other thing I wanted to mention that I thought was hilarious is Jimmy Fallon's character. I can't remember his name. Mm -hmm. At some point, he's talking to the band and like trying to convince them to do something. And he makes a comment about like, you're not going to see Mick Jagger as a rocker at like age 50. (laughs) Can I tell you? And yet. Yes. And yet. Well, when they, when he said that line, I was watching with Brian and I started laughing and I was like, huh, and Brian's like, why is that funny? And I said, because Mick Jagger, I think he's in his seventies and I'm pretty sure he's still touring. Uh-huh. And then Brian looked it up and he goes, yup. What is he? Yep. He's, he's 70. Late seventies. I'm late, pretty like sure. 78. I think he yeah, is. Yeah. Cause Charlie Watts was like 80. I think when he died and I think they're all like childhood friends too. Wow. Well, I am ready to go to categories if you are, but I would love to hear if you have any final thoughts on the film. I let's dive into categories because I think there are other things that we haven't, that I want to talk about Mm -hmm. that I know are going to come up in our categories. Yes. And I will say just two final comments. Um, I kind of keeping on the theme of us being psychic about the movies that we choose. Yes. I heard recently they're making a musical of this. Yes. I read that. We should go. (gasps) <gasps> okay okay all right okay. So we're gonna go <laughs> and then if anybody likes to read and likes this film a book recommendation i have is daisy jones and the six by okay. tyler jenkins read i would men i would recommend um listening to it just because it's it's basically written as a an oral history of a band apparently it's based on fleetwood mac mm-hmm. um but there's a lot of the same elements here so listening to it is really interesting because um they cast it with like different actors like jennifer beals oh okay is daisy jones Mm -hmm. um and then benjamin bratt is in it julie greer is a character so i'd recommend listening to it because i feel like you get more of the experience but you can also read it if that's your preference well i'm sold great okay All right. So categories, we have reached the part in our episode where we're going to discuss eight different categories and see if we have the same answers. In the last episode where we discussed Footloose, Gina and I scored three points, which brought us to a total of 62 points, which is why I picked the movie this time. So um, Gina, I think I get to go first this time. Yep. You get to go first. So 
First category is favorite character. I had a really hard time with this Mm -hmm. because I think that there's a lot of excellent characters. Um, I'm going to give you my runner up. Okay. I chose Elaine as my runner up. I love it. Who is William's mom because Mm -hmm. she is like, she seems so crazy in the beginning and she is a little bit crazy, but you see her like accept what's happening and do her best to adapt to it. And she's just, ultimately she loves her children and she just supports them. Um, and I just, I love her character. Mm-hmm. However, I chose Anita, who is William's sister. Okay. Um, I think for a lot of reasons, I mean, I think she is the whole, she's the character that sets up this whole thing. Um, she, I think in a lot of ways reminds me of my sister and like, you know, like the big sister vibes of like passing down wisdom and making your younger, you know, seeing the potential in your younger sibling to be like a really cool person and have really great interests and like recognizing something that they're going to love in the future. Um, So I loved, I loved that. And I also just loved her like free spirit, but she, she didn't do it obnoxiously. Like she just wanted to enjoy her life. And I really, I really loved her. I love, I love that answer. I didn't have the same answer, but I want to comment on what you said, because you, you talking about that made me think about Anita and that character and how she really is kind of like a, like bookends for this story. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we begin with her and you're right. She is the catalyst and she puts a, she sets the story in motion. Once he pulls that case under his bed and finds the records that she's left for him. That's it. He's off and running. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I really, I agree. Like, I like, I like her character a lot. I like that she wants to be more of a free spirit. And when she leaves and the mom and Elaine says to her, by the way, Elaine was also my runner up. Um, yeah, she was my runner up. And I love when she says, well, you're 18 and I can't stop you. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but, and I also love at the end, you know, but when she, when she leaves, sorry, I'm all over the place. Um, when she leaves before she leaves, she gives her brother a hug. And what does she say? Someday you'll be cool. Yeah. Um, I left you a present, you know, like she's, she loves her brother so much. And then at the end, when he comes back from the trip and she sees him in the airport, she immediately is like, let's go on an adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, by the way, her uniform is amazing. I know I would wear that like now, right? Like just in the house or out or anywhere. Okay. When almost famous becomes a musical, we need to get that mm-hmm. flight attendant uniform and we'll wear it to the musical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My favorite character, I chose Lester Bangs played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Wow. I did not see that coming. I didn't see it coming either, but I really, and I I actually watched this movie twice before (gasps) recording because I, there were a couple of things I was like, I need to watch it again. I want to make sure I get some things right. And I really loved his character. I loved his character because I like the role that he plays as a mentor to William you know, he, I like that. He's sort of like, okay, kid, get out of my way. I can't have like fans crowding me. And then it cuts to them sitting together in a diner. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like, you're full. It is it's a little bit like, yeah, you're full of shit, but you know, you're, you're willing to take them under your wing. Um, I think I like that. He's an anchor for William. When William has a question, he can call him and he's there for him. Um, he's, 
always offers him sound advice. He tries to steer him in the right direction. I think he protects him, you know, especially when he's telling him don't make friends with the rock stars. And there's just that line I've almost everything he says, I love mm-hmm. when he says to him, friendship is the booze they feed you. You know, he's really trying to be like, he's trying to warn him. And he wants him to be careful. And, uh, even in the end when he's like, you know, like you're okay, kid, you know, like he's just, he's a very solid person for William who is very, who is untethered for most of the film, you know? Um, and, and I really, I appreciated that character a lot. Okay. My least favorite character, you had referenced this character earlier was Allison, the fact checker. She was my least favorite, mainly because she, I felt like she was needlessly angry at William (laughs) the whole time, every, all, and anytime she was on screen and there wasn't enough backstory for me to understand why she was so upset all the time. Um, I mean, and I don't work in publishing, so I'm sure like, you know, having a story and then someone telling you 90% of it is inaccurate is very frustrating, but I don't know. It was just a little, it was a little over the top for me. And even Brian said, so he's like, I don't like her. She's so mean. I know. I assume she just hated her job and quite possibly just her whole life. (laughs) (laughs) That's possible. So she was my least favorite. Okay. I chose maybe a more obvious character, but also maybe one who like, you're not supposed to hate just Mm -hmm. because of the circumstances. But I just, I think I always have, I chose Leslie who is Russell's girlfriend slash wife slash girlfriend slash wife slash. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I wasn't quite sure what was going on there. So I don't like her not because I'm necessarily rooting for Penny and Russell to get together. I just don't like her because like, I don't know if Sean was in a band and was like, I mean, whether the band was good or bad, I'd be at every gig and she was never there. And like, maybe she like had a job and couldn't get away, but like, I don't know. It felt like they weren't even really talking to each other and clearly, clearly like, she's his ex-wife for a reason, but now she's his girlfriend. Like it, the whole dynamic was kind of weird, but then she also kind of has this, like, then when she does show up, she's like all freaked out about Penny Lane looking over at them. But then you find out she slept with Jeff. Like, yeah, it's like, I still love you. So like, clearly she, I don't know. She just not, not good. Yeah. Not good. No, it's fair. I like that answer. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, Okay. Moving on to best character arc. Mm -hmm. I referenced this person already. I chose Elaine Miller, who is William's mom. And I chose her because again, you see her like she has a very fraught relationship with her daughter because she has a certain way that she thinks people should behave and act, but she very much like loosens up over time she lets William go on tour she's like don't miss a test don't take drugs and then like kind of finds out these things are maybe happening um the conversation she has on the phone with Sapphire is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie (laughs) is this whoever with the pot and she's like no this is Elaine I'm William's (laughs) mother (laughs) 
It's so good. And then at the end of the movie, like she's there when Russell shows up and she like, you know, she could easily have been like, you need to leave my house. You're a dirty rock star. You got my son in all this trouble. And now he's really upset. And he's like, and, and, and instead she, you know, takes him to his room and like, they have this whole conversation. Um, I just felt like, again, like she, her number one priority was loving her children. And as much as it pained her to allow them to do certain things, she did it because she saw that it made them happy. I love that answer. Um, and I, and I really love that character. I, I had a different answer. Mine's kind of weird, but my answer for best character arc wasn't a character, but a group of characters. And I chose Stillwater, the band. Okay. For best arc, because so much of the story is about their journey um, coming again, like what, what, you know, it's a think piece about a, a band coming to terms with their 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 fame or whatever whatever the wording is oh think peace that's great let me write that down on my hand who write why do people write things on their hands by the way okay anyway I don't think I've ever done that anyway I I, think I have but less (laughs) less now right yeah um I I chose them because I I thought that the band as a group had a really interesting arc the the dynamic you know the you know because the first time we see them is when they're opening for black Sabbath. And then we follow them onto their tour. And the title of their tour is almost famous, which is the title of the movie. So crazy. So meta. Right. And then we see, you know, we see some, we see them undergo some experience turbulence, both metaphorically and literally. Um, And, and I like, and I like seeing how you have this interesting dynamic between Russell and Jeff and then Russell trying to figure out what he wants. And, you know, the, the moment where he goes to the party and then drops acid and then jumps off the roof into the pool and wants to watch the guy feed a mouse to his snake. Um, side note, I love those moments in the film because it's not. I I wouldn't categorize this film as a comedy at all, but I feel like the humor is so well done. Yeah. I laughed out loud so many times. Right. The, the part where, um, what was her name? Uh, Feruza Balk's character when she's running next to the bus and telling (laughs) telling William, your mom called, she said this, blah, 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 blah. blah. Okay. I'll see you guys wherever they're going. And then she just runs right into a wall. Yeah. That was hilarious because that's the kind of thing I didn't expect from this story, but there are little moments like that that are so funny. I also love how they like, there are various characters who like, if they're like a woman called, she was very scary. Yes. not like her. It was your mom. Like, (laughs) I love how so many different characters say that kind of thing, which, you know, reminded me of um, in the Emperor's New Groove when everybody describes Yzma the same way, like, Uh uh-huh. Tell me what that woman looked like. Right. <laughs> she looked older than dirt, like <laughs> theory yeah. beyond reason. I think <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, but I I really liked that journey that the band goes through, and I love that scene on the airplane. Even though I have some issues with the scene, which I, we'll we'll get to. Um, but this, the, you know, where they think that they're approaching death and then they have to confess all of these things and then it just sort of like rips open this 
um, this wound, you know, that's been kind of festering a little bit, you know, and, and then they, they have to face all of these things, but you get the sense because now they're going on another tour, no more airplanes or whatever they call it. And so they're healing from that and they're trying to move on. So I feel like in the end, they've, as a band, they've, they've grown and they've evolved and they're finding their way, but they're continuing to find their way together, at least until the end of the film, which I thought was really cool. So that's why I picked them as best arc. I like that. Thank you. Um, worst or least convincing performance. So this goes back to, I mentioned that I had some issues with the airplane scene. So worst or least convincing performance, it is not a reference to the actor's performance, but it is in reference to the pilots on the airplane and how they carried <laughs> themselves during an electrical storm. I should have known this. <laughs> because as Did I you was consult a pilot, I consulted my boyfriend pilot, but before I even did that, as I was watching the scene, I was like, there is no way that this would fly. No pun intended or pun intended in an actual emergency. A pilot should not lose his shit like that, even behind closed doors, regardless yeah. of whether the door pops open or not. And I even asked Lee and I, I didn't show him the scene, but I described it to him. And Lee was like, no. And I won't tell you what he said what he, his actual words were, but basically he told me that if he were ever in a situation like that and the other pilot completely lost control over themselves in that way, he would never fly with them again. Well, sure. Yeah. 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 And he also has been, and when I said electrical storms to him, he goes, you mean a thunderstorm? <laughs> I said yes, but that's what they call it in the movie. Sometimes but- you can have thunder without lightning. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny, but he um, and he actually Lee had actually told me like he he did he has flown in that situation because I was asking like is this really possible like couldn't because when Brian and I were watching it Brian was like why can't they just fly above the storm but then Lee was explaining to me like sometimes he's like if this took place in the 1970s depend you know it depends on the kind of like equipment that they had to detect weather patterns you know and sometimes like you can you know predict and plan as best you can, but then all of a sudden you're just in it and you can't, you might not be able to fly over the storm. Um, and so you just have to fly in it and he's been in those situations and he's like, it's terrifying, but I know him. Um, and he does not lose his cool. He is so calm, you know, and especially in situation, like when I dislocated my shoulder and he had to take Mm -hmm. me to the emergency room, like he was so calm even when I was freaking out. So I know that when he's in an emergency situation as a pilot, his number one job is to do his job, make the passengers feel safe and just not crash the plane. (laughs) So if I'm ever in an emergency, I will be calling Lee to just calm me down. You need to call Lee to calm you down because he yeah. will, he will keep you calm. He's amazing. Good. Okay. That's my answer. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> um, okay. Um, my answer is less uh, exciting. 
Okay. <laughs> but I think I think you may agree. So I chose Aaron Foley, who played the fact-checking person. Okay. Because the whole time I was like, okay, I understand that like it's not good if you're trying to fact check and potentially everything is wrong, but she just seemed like I was like, she's disproportionately angry. Yes. And like she seems so put off even in the smallest of circumstances. Um, and I think I don't know. I mean, I guess she was an actress if then she was also in an episode of this show go on, but I wonder mm-hmm. if maybe she wasn't really an actress. Hmm. And like didn't know how to do what she was doing. No, I I agree. I and I think that's partly why she was my least favorite character. I, I felt like her response was disproportionate. But again, I don't work in publishing, but I just I just didn't care for her portrayal of that character in the context of the story that was being told. Yeah. I mean, I, my, I, her job is not my job, but like my job is stressful and shit changes all the time. And I feel like, you know, you just gotta be, you gotta be Lee. Everyone be Lee. Everyone just be Lee. Just be calm. It's just going to make it better. Hashtag just be Lee. Just be Lee. JBL. Yep. There you go. Um, on the other side for best performance. So I'm going to give a runner up to Michael Angarano who played mm-hmm. young William. Oh, so, okay. So first I of agree. all, he's so cute. So and cute. I watched the scene again where he found out how old he was. Yes. He's like 11. <laughs> that is one of my favorite parts in the whole entire movie. Going back to the comedy. It was, he nailed that. That was so it's perfect. The timing, so the volume, the good. level, it was perfect. And then also like, there's the one scene where Anita's like, he hates you. And he's like, I don't hate you. Like he's, <laughs> he is just so good. And then when he finds her albums and he finds a note and he has like the look of discovery on his face, I really love him. I also love him now. Um, I can't remember if you watched the like later seasons of this is us, but he, Oh plays- yeah. I watched all of it. Oh, okay. So he plays Nikki when like in the, in the Vietnam oh, war times. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's him. Oh, he's great. In yeah. That role. I, so I just, I mean, I think he's a phenomenal actor. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but for this movie, I chose Jason Lee. Okay. Um, and I chose him because I just, I don't know. I just felt like he portrayed the character of like a guy who wants to be in a band and hang out with his friends and do this thing that he loves, but then also like is trying to make it in the business and has, you know, like that the fight scene between him and Russell was so excellent the scene on the plane where he's like confessing what's happening he is so excellent like he and his character also has like a great range of kind of like seriousness and comedy his performance scenes and the concerts are so great um so I just I really just appreciate like there's just so much to his performance and so many different aspects to it and I think he did a great job I love your answer so much. I wish that was my answer because I I'm just, I'm a big fan of Jason Lee and and I, I agree. I think he was really great in this film. I also love him. Yeah. I I did not pick him. I actually, I actually went with Kate Hudson. Okay. And, and the reason why the, the moment that sealed it for me was when she, when William tells her 
that she was traded for $50 and a case of beer. Yeah. That is a great, she does a really great job in that. Yeah. And I, and I love that because what I love about that scene, I thought it was a beautiful performance in that moment because she's conveying multiple emotions simultaneously the hurt, the disappointment, the, I'm just going to shrug it off. I'm going to deflect this with humor, but you can tell she's still, she's really torn by it. And I thought it was so beautiful. And even like moving forward, I think from that moment on her performance in the film was so good. Um, you know, the, the quaalude scene and, um, the walk with William, when she tells him what her real name is, and, and I know this scene is so simple, but when Russell calls her and is like, I have to see you and you see her grab the, just listening and she grabs the address book. And, you know, we find out later that she's giving him William's address, not hers. Um, I, I, I just thought that um, I really liked her in this role and I wish Kate Hudson had more roles like this. You know, I was going through her, catalog and she's done so many Mm rom-coms um and so many movies where she's kind of where she not kind of where she's pitted against another woman yeah like bride wars like bride wars and then something borrowed um you know where and she's usually like the quote-unquote I guess we'll say villain or you know she's a little bit more vilified than the other character in the story but I would love to see her in more films like this. And I did read that she said that this was one of her, you know, most treasured experiences as, as an actress being in this film. Yeah, um, I, I think, I, I think as a performer, I think she has a great range and I would just love to see her do more things where she can showcase that. I mean, she's great in the, in the, in the comedies that I've seen her and she's very funny. Um, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in that respect. Cause her mother is Mm-hmm. is delightful and such a talented comedic actress. Um, but I thought she was wonderful in this film. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Um, so I picked her for best performance, but she's part of my, you lost me at, but it's more about the, the, the character Penny Lane, because she, in the beginning, when uh, William refers to her and the other girls as groupies, and she gives that whole speech, we're not groupies. And she explains what the distinction is between groupies and band-aids and um, and there there's a moment later in the film where she says to William that, you know, Russell could be great and he's her last project. And what, but what I was lost about was, well, what is, how is she making him great? And now that I know she's 16, I'm like, no, seriously, like she, because thinking (laughs) of her as like maybe 20, Uh 21, you know, like I, I feel like, you know, she's, she's experienced the world. She, you know, has wisdom to impart, but I think where I was lost was, how was she making Russell great? But I did feel like she made William great. I feel like because we see more of that connection, the connection she has with Russell is in like stolen glances and, and, you know, everything and behind closed doors. So don't really see how she's like a horse whisperer to him for lack of a better term, you know? So maybe she's a muse, but like, I don't know the whole muse concept kind of bothers me. Yeah. But I didn't really see how, like you can, I see how her character is very 
dynamic and there's a gravity to her. I see that, but how does that make Russell great? How does that make him find himself as a musician? Um, especially when, you know, she claims in the beginning, we don't sleep with them. And then there's that joke, we just give them blowjobs. But, um, you know, but even she says to William, you know, don't fall in love, don't take it seriously, da, 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 da. But she breaks her own rules clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that, like that part of the story, I was, I was just a little bit lost. That was my, you lost me at. Yeah, that's totally fair. And mine is connected to that. I don't know if it's connected enough to get a point, mm-hmm. but my, you lost me at is Penny Lane's age. And like, okay. part, <laughs> part of it is because it's a little gross because also like, remember when they're saying like, I've got to like, tell Penny I want it to be like last summer but then last Mm. if she's 16 now then last summer she was 15 so that's real gross that's another reason why I thought she was older but yeah but I really think she. oh my gosh yeah I know I know (laughs) um but I think also just sort of related to your point like she is this young and I'm not saying young people can't have an impact or young people can't be influential but I mean the way that she presented herself is so much older she's like presumably the leader of these other band-aids and some of them seem I mean we don't know their age they could all be at the same age but mm-hmm. they all seem a lot older so I just was having a hard time reconciling like how old is she and can someone of that age really have this relationship or this impact in this way and I think the answer could be yes but I just I don't know it was bizarre yeah no I get that um okay my you had me at I think uh you could probably guess it's obviously the soundtrack (laughs) of course I mean it's just like it's so good. It makes me want to cry. Like in the music, in the music, in the movie, like whenever the music would play, I was like, this is the perfect song. Mm -hmm. There were a few times I would say to Sean, I was like, this song is not on the soundtrack. (laughs) I really wish it had been. So for example, like teacher by Jethro Tull plays, that is my favorite Jethro Tull song at the end of the film. There's two Led Zeppelin songs. Um, and I don't like, I don't think either of them are on it are on the actual official soundtrack, but that's been, that's what led me this morning to like Google (laughs) and see if they had an extended one and I found it. So that will be arriving tomorrow. I love it. I'm not surprised that that was your, you had me at, um, my, you had me at, we actually, you brought this up a couple of times. Um, my, you had me at was the mother son relationship between William and Elaine. I, I loved it so much. You know, I, 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 I had mentioned earlier that Elaine was my runner up for favorite character and I went with Lester Banks, but I, but I definitely wanted to talk about Elaine, but so much of what I would say you've already said. So I don't want to, you know, rehash too much of it, but I, I really love that relationship. Um, I, I said, I watched it with Brian the first time and when she, when he gets out of the car at the, for the black Sabbath concert. And then she rolls in the window and she shouts, don't take drugs. 
I said to Brian, I said, now every time I drop you off somewhere, I'm going to say this to you. I, I usually say make good choices, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to like make good choices. Don't take drugs. I'm going to say was that he, every was he time. Like, Mom, no. He was like, he was like, all right. Cause he knows I'm going to do it. Yeah. And the scene you had mentioned the scene where, um, so it's at the end of the concert, I remember she says, just listen for the the family whistle. And Brian and I were like, what the <laughs> hell is the family whistle? And then when he's talking to Penny Lane and she's asking him about going to Morocco, one of the things that I love about that scene, in addition to him, at, like, ask me again, which I love. I love that mm-hmm. Cameron Crowe kept that in. But then we hear the mom's whistle faintly in the background. Oh, I didn't hear that. Yeah. And that's why he keeps turning around because he's like, he wants to talk to Penny Lane, but his mom is whistling. But also I agree, you know, she, she's a little nuts, but she still gives her son freedom to do this thing. It's a little bit of a double standard because I get the impression that she probably would not have done that with Anita. Anita leaves when she's 18. It's like, well, you're 18 and I can't stop you, but William is 15. And so she's letting him go. Although maybe because he's getting paid a thousand dollars to do it might be part of it. I also feel like parents tend to like relax with the younger sibling too. Yeah, that's true. I just think that, um, I, I love that relationship. I, I love that. You can tell that he loves his mom. Yeah. Like when he says like, I don't hate her, like as the story progresses and develops, like, no, no, he really does love his mom. Yeah. Um, yeah. and she absolutely loves him. And there's that, what, what got me was the one time when she was, I forget where he was when she said this line, but she's kind of ranting over the phone and, and she says, maybe she's like, I guess I just really miss you. I know. And I, I love loved that. that so much, you know, as a parent, as a mother of a son, I get that. And I, yeah. and so that was my, you had me at. Can you and Brian please come up with a family whistle? Okay. <laughs> I will. <laughs> um, but and then a lot of that kind of ties into my favorite lines. I had two runners up, which were things that Elaine said. And one of them was don't take drugs. And like I said, uh-huh. I'm going to say that to Brian every time I drop him off. And the other yeah. one was when she's teaching and then she says, I'm sorry, I can't concentrate. Rock stars have kidnapped my son. <laughs> That's such a good one. I love that line. She's so good. She has <laughs> such good lines because like her lines are so funny, but she says them so seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her timing, Francis, Mc- Francis McDormand is awesome in this film. Yeah. My favorite line is something that Lester Bang says. And I mentioned before that everything that he said, every, every word that came out of that character's mouth, I absolutely swallowed up. I loved it. My favorite line is at the end. And it's when William has come back from the tour and he's talking to Lester and Lester. And he's like, you can tell he's trying to, you can tell William is trying to piece together what just happened, like what his experience has been and, and questioning a lot of things. And one of the things that Lester says is the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. I love that line so much because so much of, and and I think that's one of the things that connects Lester to William because one of the, you know, when he's asking William questions and he asks him about the other kids at school and William says, they hate me. 
you know, and there's always this like idea, like William's not cool. He's not, you know, he's just like this innocent kid. He's not a cool kid. And Lester, I think feels uncool also because he doesn't buy into the inauthenticity of that world of rock and roll, you know, like he don't be friends with them, write What's true. Be unmerciful, be honest. It's not cool to do that, but that's what you have to do and embrace that. And I, um, I just love that line. And I just think it's a beautiful line. Yeah, it really is. That's my favorite. And I think like, it kind of speaks to your whole point about being real and being authentic. Like that's sometimes when you make the best connections with people, when you're not trying to be cool or you're trying to be authentic, you're just like being who you are and who cares if anybody cares about it. Like, yeah, it is what it is. Exactly. I love that. Yay. Great line. Um, like you, I also had some runners up because the dialogue in this film is so good. Yeah. It's so good. It's so funny. It's so deep. It's so impactful. It's so good. So um, I have three runners up. Okay. Um, one, one is a line that you referenced already when Anita is leaving home for the first time and she says to William, one day you'll be cool. Mm, I love that. I love it. Um, and then my other two that are funny are um, there's, <laughs> there's a scene where they're on the tour bus and they have made a stop at like a gas station and the bus is driving away and they are, they've left Jeff and he comes out of the bathroom. And he's like, just leave me behind. I'm only the fucking lead singer. <laughs> Can I, one of the, one of the, one of the lines that I love that he says, and I forget and it's like when he's talking and he's always saying like, don't print this, don't print this. And I forget what it was that he says. And he goes, actually that you can print. I yeah. Love that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go ahead. That. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. And then I love when Russell <laughs> says, I'm a golden God. And you can tell Rolling Stone that my last words were I'm on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. But my actual favorite line, and I don't think that this will be a surprise to anybody who knows me is an ex- number one. It's an exchange of dialogue, which te- mm-hmm. te- tends to be my, um, favorite lines. True. And then what it actually is, uh, William says, so Russell, what do you love about music? And Russell says to begin with everything. Yes. Which is again, I, I feel like I often also pick the last line in a film. Yeah. I love that line. Did you know, do you know what to begin with is a reference to? No. So apparently I missed this, but in the beginning of the film, there's an eight track and it's a Stillwater eight track and it's their, supposed to be their first one, their first album. And it's called to begin with. Oh, that's so lovely. Right. So it's a reference to that. So that's why when he says to begin with, and then there's like this little twinkle uh-huh. in his eye, everything, but oh, yeah. Oh, that's so smart but I love I I that does not surprise me that that's your favorite line that is a great line but the I agree I think I think the whole film the the dialogue it's the the writing is beautiful it is so beautiful yeah I have a question for you okay do you think that Penny and Russell will find each other again oh that's a good question maybe I think that Penny needs to go to Morocco and be on her own. And like she says, I need a different scene, a different crowd. 
Yeah. I think she needs that. I think she needs to step away. And I think Russell needs to figure out his stuff, but I could see like, if they both come to, I could see if they both came to a point where they knew who they were, Mm -hmm. they could come back together. And I I could see, I could see that relationship working out actually. I agree. Yeah. I feel like they both need to take the time to like, cause the circumstances of them getting together are so messed up. Yeah. I feel like they both need to like pull apart. She needs to do her own thing. He needs to like get his shit figured out and like not have his weirdness with Leslie and like truly be single. And then they can see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know what? Can I say, even though we didn't get any points, I don't care. And I, I was really, I was so interested to know what your answers were to the categories, not to see if we got points, but I was just interested to know what your answers were. You know what I mean? I was going to say the same thing. Like we did not score any points and I don't even feel sad about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that you picked this movie and I really enjoyed watching it again. And I, like I said, I really did feel like I was, you were kind of sitting next to me energetically (laughs) (laughs) while I was watching it. So I can experience it in a way that showed me what you loved about it because I, I definitely can see why you love this film and it made me appreciate the film more. Oh, I'm so glad. And thank you so much for watching it with me. And I feel like, you know, it's a film that I've loved for a very long time, but I've never had a conversation like this about it. So it's yeah. just like added an extra layer to it. And it's, it's again, kind of going back to like our weird, the weird way that we pick things and the weird way that like the timing works out, like to watch this film. And then Sean and I are leaving for fish tour on Thursday. So like it was, it just like added an extra layer of appreciation for like being so into a band and following them around and doing stuff. Um, So I I think that that just really enhanced and added to my experience and and then getting to talk to you about it really. Oh, that makes me so happy. Oh, well, good. Yay. Thank you. Well, we're going to say goodbye to Almost Famous. Okay. And you look so sad. <laughs> I miss okay. it already. <laughs> I have to tell you, I've had, so I don't usually listen to music during the day, like during the workday, because I just have to like, I'm on so many calls or meetings, yeah. but I was listening to the soundtrack today when I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've had Fever Dog in my head all day. Nice. <laughs> I will tell you, like, I haven't listened to the soundtrack in a really long time, but even watching the movie, like the words came right back. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, I love it. Okay. I'm ready to let go. Okay. Okay. We're letting go. We're moving on. I have a new movie for us to watch. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that I have um, unintentionally asked if you've seen on multiple occasions. And I think it's time for you to crack this one open and give it a watch. Sonia. Okay. So our next film that we are going to be watching is Jacob. Tell me roll, please. Happy Gilmore. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sonia, what's it about? Okay. Happy Gilmore is a golfer. And I think his name's not really happy, but it must be like his golf nickname. Um, and there's a tournament and he has to play for like his pride or maybe a lot of money. And I think Bob Barker is there 
And at one point, Happy is mad because the ball won't go into his home. Does he think he's too good for his home? And I have no idea what else happens. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. You have the basic plot. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But um, I mean, there are obviously nuances that you will discover in your viewing and I hope you enjoy it. You know who Sean is going to be very happy about this. Okay. Yay. I'm, I'm excited when I pick a film that will please Sean. <laughs> I know. Cause I feel like he's, he's like the, I, I don't know. I, he's I feel a like a bigger critic than I am. I was going to say, yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of our episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at NNSIPod. And if you enjoy our podcast, like John Mulaney does, tell your friends. They can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Like and subscribe and all the things. And join us next time with your cocktail at the ready when we talk about Happy Gilmore. We'll see you then because we've got lots more to watch. And I've seen nothing. So please keep listening. And we'll keep watching. Bye. Bye.